I'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles. That can be found in page 749. Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. These are the words of Jesus. Now, some of you may know the name Cory Booker, mayor of Newark, New Jersey. He was already a rising political star. Uh, He did things like lived in a bad part, a rough part of his own town as mayor. And then he was doing things like helping his neighbors shovel out when there was a bad snowstorm. But this week he became, uh, maybe Wednesday or Thursday, he became instantly more famous recently, and we're going to show a little news item that illustrates that. If we could have the lights off first. Corey, I don't know whether to hug you or say, what are you thinking? Well, first of all, uh, my security detail. You two, Detective Rodriguez. Detective Rodriguez, Detective Santos, Duran. I mean, these guys were incredible. They got everybody out of the house. When I arrived, uh, we were pulling the last people out. And the mother was just complaining that, uh, screaming, her daughter was still up there. And it's flames. It's fully engulfed. It's, yeah, at yeah. that point, it was, it, was, it was pretty touch and go. When we climbed the stairs, something exploded. Right. And um, at that point, he started doing his job, which was to grab me and start trying to drag me out of there. And we had a little bit of a fight. And, uh, and you won. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> well, what I won. was the conversation? Yeah. Can't let you in. Uh, and uh, he basically told me, this woman is going to die if we don't help her. And... Uh, what can I say to that? And uh, I let him go, and uh, without thinking twice, he just ran into the flames and uh, rescued this uh, young lady. Most people in circumstances like this always say, I wasn't thinking about the danger. I was thinking about the mission. Um, you know, my first instinct was when I got jumped through the, the kitchen, which was all in flames, I actually wasn't thinking. But then when I got there and I couldn't find her in all the smoke, looked behind me and saw the, the kitchen really erupting with flames all over the ceiling, that's when I had very clear thoughts that I'm not going to get out of this uh, place alive and, and got, as I told Kale, very religious. Um, but thankfully she started yelling out to me and I was able to find uh, her through all the smoke. At that point I grabbed her, we went back through, that's where I got burned and she got uh, burns on her back. You literally picked her out of the bed? I, where I, you I was not gentle and just uh-huh. sort of threw her over my shoulder and just uh, dragged her through the kitchen, which was, that was my fears. I didn't think we were going to be able to get out through that kitchen. And that was the only way out? That was the only way out. I was hoping there was going to be a window in the front that it was on the second story. I thought we could potentially get out. But that's when I had a lot of clear thoughts about you know, what, how we're gonna, how we get out. So I punched through the kitchen and the flames, saw Detective Rodriguez, he grabbed her as well, and we got her down the stairs, and we both just collapsed outside the, outside the building. What did you mean when you said you had religious thoughts? Uh, you know, uh, it's a, you're come to Jesus moment, uh, and... Uh, you said, I'm coming, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I may not be ready. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, I, it was a, a feeling of being trapped, and um, no, <clears throat> not, I couldn't see anything but the flames coming out of the kitchen, yeah. and I really had this moment where I thought, uh, okay, uh, I think this is. I think I'm trapped. I think we can't get out. And, and what's the smoke inhalation feeling? 
Um, you know, I, I, I got out and I just couldn't breathe and I, and I kept coughing and taking deep breaths was really hard. And that's why, you know, I have a, today I have a new profound, res I have this incredible feeling, you know, yesterday all my problems were really big to me. This yeah. Today things feel yeah. a lot more clear and I have a lot more respect for firefighters. What would you say if someone came to you before this happened and said, look, if there was someone in a burning building that you might have a chance to rescue, but you might also not and you might end up burning alive? Well, I think your imagination is always that you would do the right thing, um, but I tell you, when you, it, it was very different for me when I was had left him, when he finally got him to let go of me, went through the the, the flames. Uh, it is a very very scary thing, and uh, I'd like to say that I, at that point I was feeling so courageous, but honestly, it was terrifying. And uh, to look back, you and see nothing but flames. Look in front of you and see nothing but blackness. So. So in one respect, this story would have been even better last week as we celebrated Easter. But unfortunately, Mayor Booker did not cooperate, and it only happened to him this week. But in case I didn't set it up enough, you know, you know the, if you haven't read the news or heard the news, you, you know the idea is that he got home from work one day, and a security detail was just in front of him. And he got home from work one day and found out that his neighbor's house was on fire. And the security detail, by the time he stopped, his car had already rescued most of the people. But one of the women was screaming, my daughter's still upstairs. And so Booker insisted on going in, and his security detail said, no, we, our job is to keep you safe. You can't go in. So he, they had a couple of arguments, quick arguments about it, and then he went in. Now, this, you, you can't really, even custom-made, you can't come up with a better illustration of Jesus and what he did for us at Easter. But that's not really the point of the story for our purposes today. We'll come back to it for what the point is later on. In John's Gospel, as Jesus hangs on the cross, just before he dies, he cries out, it is finished. Just before he breathes his last, he says, my job is done. It is finished. A chapter later, he rises from the dead and the gospel ends. Luke does not record that saying. No, any historians are selective. You've got to choose certain things to tell your story and other things you don't choose. You leave them out. And Luke left that out. But it's not just an incidental, by the way, oh, I had too many things to include. I couldn't put this one in there. Luke clearly doesn't want to record that. It is finished. See, It's not that he disagrees with it. It's not that he's not aware of it. But Luke's particular perspective and his particular slant on Easter is, it's not finished. It wasn't finished last week when Jesus rose. If you look at the table of contents to your New Testament, the way it's organized now, you, you, wouldn't, be, you wouldn't realize this, right? What are the first five books in our New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke. I mean, I've got to get this one right, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you're not familiar with this, there's an easy way to remember it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took an axe, and the next book is Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took an axe and killed the Romans 
for those of you who are real. <laughs> okay. If you're a pacifist, my apologies. Anyway, so here's the order in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Luke didn't intend that. You know, it's okay. It's not like there's a fault or anything wrong with the New Testament. But that's not Luke's intention. You know, we know why they compiled it that way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about the life of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the closest, similar to each other. Uh, you, know, you know, maybe he's interdependent. Maybe they used each other as sources. So they're all three together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John is appended. And then Acts comes next. But th that was not Luke's intention. Because Luke didn't write just a gospel. He wrote, well, you could call it a two-volume work, but he didn't intend for it really to be two volumes. The only reason Luke's writing is two volumes is because the whole thing wouldn't fit on one scroll. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Book of Acts. He couldn't get it all on one scroll because it would be too big and unwieldy. So he separated it into two scrolls. Now we've separated it into two entirely different you know, pieces by, by sticking the Gospel of John in the middle of it. But that's not what he intended. So we want to look at, and he lets us know what his intention is at the very end of this chapter, chapter 24. He, he, he ends chapter 24 with pretty much the same stuff that he's going to begin the book of Acts with. Because he wants to, you know, he wants to wrap up one volume and tell you another volume's coming. And then when he gets to the second volume, he, go, he goes back and repeats what was at the end of the first volume. So you know, these two belong together. Now, it's fine that they're not together in our Bibles, but they need to be together in our minds. Because Luke didn't just write about Jesus. He wrote just as long and just as much about the early church. And he tells us why he has volume one and why he has volume two at the end of this. Luke's basic point in chapter 24, the verses that Gerald just read for us, is this. It is not finished. He's not disagreeing with John. Obviously, the, the story of, of Jesus accomplishing salvation, that's finished. But Luke's making another point. The work of God is not finished. Uh, the salvation won by Christ is finished. But the work of God, God's whole purpose in sending Christ, that's not finished. When Christ dies on the cross and rises from the dead. And to make this point, so you can see this clearly, what I want to do today is, what we'll do today is, we'll compare Luke chapter 24, verse 21. Um, if you, you, you want to follow this, I have to take a minute to look up. What page was that, Gerald? 749, page 749. We'll take a look, first of all, at Luke chapter 24, verse 21. Because this identifies what the early Christians' expectation was. Or the early followers of Jesus. They weren't Christians, they were Jews. But what their expectation was. Take a look at Luke chapter 24, verse 21. And we'll contrast that with what Luke later on says. So first of all, Luke chapter 24, verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Let's break this down into three pieces. Who? We had hoped that he, their expectation was for a Messiah. Their expectation when they saw Jesus, he's the Messiah. 
Their expectation was that God was going to send somebody like a prophet, but even greater. Somebody like Moses. You know, the great prophet Moses, who was powerful in word and, and in deed. He did miracles and he taught from God. And their expectation was that there, there was a Messiah who was going to come. And when they saw Jesus, their focus was on him. God has come to do something special, and he's going to do it through Jesus. The second part of their expectation, what? He, they had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to come and do what? Redeem. Now, for us, this is pretty much either an obscure term or it's a religious term, redemption. You know, we don't use it very much. If you take a can, you know, these empty soda cans and bring it back to the redemption center, you get five cents exchanging one thing for another. But we don't use the word redemption much. If we use it at all, it's in religious. You know, you come to church, you learn the word redemption, that Jesus died for our sins. Well, they understood it a little bit differently. They were an occupied country. Uh, you know, the, the Jews were occupied by the Romans, infidels. Uh, they hated being an occupied country. They said their God was great, and yet they were occupied by people who worshipped another God. That can't be convincing. And once before in their history, or twice before in their history, God had redeemed them. When many centuries earlier, you remember the story that Israel was captive in Egypt. To, to uh, avoid a famine, in order to survive, the patriarchs of Israel had gone down to Egypt. And there they spread, they grew in number. And they became such an intimidating minority, such a large minority, that the Egyptians were afraid of them and then afflicted them, basically turned them into slaves. And they cried out to God for deliverance. And God sent Moses. And as the Greek Old Testament describes this story, what did Moses do? We'd say he delivered them in English. Now the Greek word is the same one here. He redeemed them. He rescued them. And so that's what they were looking for Jesus to do. They were looking for Jesus to come in and rescue them as an oppressed people. Not just politically, politically. Surely politically. But also religiously. You know, they were... They're, Oh, masters were, uh, their overlords were pagans. They were looking for political and they were looking for spiritual deliverance. And they were looking for that from Jesus. So Jesus came. They think, here's the Messiah. Here he is. He's coming to deliver us. And then where? The third part of this. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one coming to redeem Israel. That was their expectation that Jesus would save, that Jesus would deliver the Jews, the people of Israel. That was their hope, their longing. They'd been oppressed on and off for centuries. And they were weary. And they were calling out to God. And they had hoped that Jesus had come, much like Moses, to deliver them from these foreign pagan oppressors. That's what Jesus' followers were looking for. Now, at the very end of this chapter, after he's appeared and after he's spoken to them, Jesus very quickly, subtly, tries to change their expectation at all three points. And Luke makes this point as he heads into the book of Acts. 
Take a look at chapter 24, verses 45 to 49, with these same three questions in mind. Verse 45, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now that surprised them already because when Christ came, they expected him to come in power when the Messiah came and instead he came and he hung on a cross and that threw them off. And so Jesus is explaining, well, no. No, Jesus is still talking about himself and he's still talking about redemption. But he says, you know, he shows them, the first thing he shows them from the Old Testament, from Scripture, is that the Messiah would come. He was the Messiah. The Messiah would redeem, but he would redeem not by conquering, but by dying. So Jesus builds on this expectation. He begins with this foundation. He opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. But Luke does not stop there. Because it is not finished. What else did scriptures tell them that they failed to see? The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So you see at each point now, Jesus and Luke corrects their expectation. Their expectation is that the gospel is a story about Jesus. It's a story about the Messiah. And Luke's point is, that's only part one of a two-part gospel. Because the other part of the gospel, verse 47, there will be preaching beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Part one of the gospel is about Jesus. Part two of the gospel is about all of his followers, the rest of us. Part one of the gospel is about redemption. Jesus will come and deliver his people from their political oppressors, their spiritual oppressors. He'll come and deliver his people from their sin. But that's still just part one of the gospel. It is not finished. Part two of the gospel is repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Part one not just Jesus, but us. Part two, not just redemption, but witness. Forgiveness of sins will be preached. You are witnesses of these things. And then the third element, Luke corrects. Their expectation was that redemption would come to Israel. And Jesus corrects that to say, redemption of the gospel. Repentance and forgiveness will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So you see the contrasts, what they began the day with and what he ended the day with. You see why Luke's gospel is not the end of what Luke wrote. He's being entirely consistent. The gospel is just part one. And the only reason it's separated from part two is that it's, the scroll can't hold it all. 
I suppose you're like me. You know, before I started studying this passage, you know, we celebrate Easter and we celebrate, you know, we've got four Gospels. We celebrate the great things that God has done for us in Jesus. And, and these things are worthy to celebrate. But that's not where Jesus wanted the story to end. That's the first half of the story. It's about Jesus. It's about redemption. It's about Israel or, 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 or us as Christians. But the whole second part of the story, it, it, it's about us. It's about preaching forgiveness and repentance of sins. It's about the whole world. Now, in our preaching roster, people have been asking me, now that we get through Luke, where will we go next? Well, we're going to go into the book of Joshua. You know, we, we have a pattern of preaching New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. Because, you know, Old Testament seems a little kind of distant from us. So some of the times it's hard. You don't want to just preach, you know, you don't want to preach through 39 books of the Old Testament before you ever get to Matthew. So we bounce back and forth between them. But I think probably if we had studied this passage a few years ago, before we preached from Acts, after preaching Luke, what should we do? We should preach Acts. Because that's how Jesus sees the gospel here. And that's how Luke portrays the gospel. It is not just about Jesus. Jesus is part one. Now we're part two. It's not just about redemption. It's about broadcasting the offer of forgiveness. It's not just about Israel or us who gather in this church. It's, it's about the, all the nations, the whole world. Very simple point. But I think it will profoundly and dramatically change how we live if we grasp this simple point that Luke makes at the end of chapter 24. Let's talk about some of what it might mean. There's a mega church out in Seattle that's kind of planting a lot of other churches or, or taking over other churches, co-opting, whatever have you call it. But they have a church planting network, and what they call it is Acts 29. Because the book of Acts has 28 chapters, and they say, well, we're a continuation of that. Oh, yeah. We, you know, we could call ourselves Gospel Part 2. The whole of Acts is Gospel Part 2. That's Luke's point here. How do we live this out? Every day that I pray, and nowadays it's most every day, I start off by praying for my family. You see? That's really pretty much Israel. And it's perfectly legitimate for, to pray for our families. But how about all nations? You know, and so that prayer guide I hand out, we'll list one of our missionaries in there to remind us to pray for our missionaries. But, you know, how do we pray? Are, are we celebrating our own redemption from G by Jesus? Are we Israel looking for Jesus to redeem us? Or are we also praying for the people that we work with, the people that we uh, live around, the people in our own extended families. Are, are we disciples praying for the opportunity to share the possibility of forgiveness of sins to all nations? 
How do we pray? Do we celebrate what Jesus has done for us and we pray for the salvation of our parents and we pray for the salvation of our young children? Or do we do that and also pray for the work of God around the world through our missionaries? One of the more difficult teachings of the New Testament is actually one that comes out right here in this verse. Notice verse 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached, what? In his name. This is something a lot of people struggle with. A lot of Christians struggle with this. I've talked recently with Christians who struggle with this. You mean that people must hear the name of Jesus to be saved. What about people who've never heard of Jesus? How will they have their sins forgiven? How will they know to repent? This is a, a difficult question. I mean, when people ask it, often they get upset with God. God, how can, how can you set it up this way? Luke doesn't fault God. He might have a word or two to say about us. How can it be that part one was finished 2,000 years ago and part two still isn't finished? Now, no one is condemned for what they don't hear. People are condemned for the knowledge of God that they have and they reject. But, but basically, here it is. The, the little bit of knowledge we have of God apart from the gospel, the little bit of knowledge of God that we have through creation and conscience is not typically enough to save because we're, we're twisted people. We turn from that knowledge we have through creation and conscience. So people need to hear the gospel. But it's not like God has kept it from hearing the gospel. Jesus came and he died. He laid the foundation for salvation. Now people need to hear and Luke says, repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Do we use the opportunities we have to talk to people? You know, not forcibly. Here, let's see. I'm not suggesting that, that we should go to work with iBlack, with John on one side and 316 on the other. Or that every time you make a great sale at work, you know, or you achieve the end of some project, you should drop to one knee in the Tebow stance. Think about it. I mean, it's been a long time, thankfully, in a way. You know, you'll be very sure to know this. I don't work directly with any non-believers. Everybody I work with as a pastor in this church has professed faith in Christ. <laughs> well, I mean. Don't, don't, anyway. <laughs> uh, truly. <laughs> um, you know, when I took a year off between undergraduate and grad school. I took a year off and I was w working in the back. You don't have to force opportunities to talk about Jesus. All you got to do is have friends and talk about your life. And Jesus comes out. And I remember when I worked in the bank and I was at the central office and I don't know, a week or two in, the, the colleagues were sitting around lunch trying to figure out, you know, they'd all grown up in the church, but in those days everybody went to church, and they were trying to figure out what, what I was talking about, and then somebody went home. I, it was just a natural course of the conversation as we were playing cards over lunch, you know, eating lunch, playing cards, and, and talking about Jesus. And, 
Then one of them went home and said, Oh, I talked to my husband about you, and he figured, he, maybe he thinks you're Jehovah's Witness. Now, if you're an insider, you know that we're pretty far away from the Jehovah's Witnesses. We know Jehovah's Witnesses and us, we don't see eye to eye on these things. But that was the only paradigm they'd had. They'd never heard that you could actually pray to somebody who cared about you and listened in your home rather than going to a church and talking to the priest. You know, I, I went my first year at a secular school, a secular university, a regular university. And I think for most of my, most of my suite mates, my flatmates, my floor mates, I think that was the first person they'd ever known that actually had a daily kind of relationship with Jesus or with any God. You know, it wasn't that popular in those days. We don't have to make a big deal out of it. All we've got to do is be who we are, and then people close to us can see it. How about you make your decisions? Now, most of our high schoolers or the seniors have already decided what college they're going to go to, but, you know, in future years, as you take your kids to consider college, when you go to look at a college, look, the status of that college is only one issue to consider. Think about the opportunities you have there to share your faith. Look for what Christian groups might be on campuses, what churches are in town, and how they're going to help you represent Christ. My oldest son was considering a school, well, at my advice, he was considering a school in Florida that was one of the most liberal schools in the country. Now, my son ended up going to a Christian college, which was really a, a sea change. But you can tell how cheap I am. This, is, this school had one of the best educations at one of the lowest prices. You know, a top 10 deal in U.S. News and World Report. But it was one of the most liberal schools in the country. So every weekend they have what they call a naked party where the college police guard all the entrances to the school to keep the town police out so that the students can get drunk, take drugs, and walk around naked if they so choose. So I'm thinking, if I'm going to send my kid to this kind of school, maybe we should go look it out, check it out first. And, and I made arrangements ahead of time to meet with the university staff. And then when we flew down there, we didn't just meet with the admissions office and with the academic advisor. We also met with the university fellowship staff to see what it was like. When my other son went off to college, we explored churches out there. What effect can we have for Jesus? When I transferred from a secular university to a Christian university, I had very little direct effect for Jesus at a Christian school. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to Christian schools. There's perfectly legitimate reasons to go to Christian schools. But it is a decision, to, a factor to bear in mind as you make these decisions. How about our families? You know, when we have kids... You know, we want to pray to Jesus for the redemption of our own families. But if our kids become, our kids become the center of our lives, what about all nations and witness? Kids are one of the greatest opportunities to connect with people who don't know Jesus. Kids are a great opportunity to connect with anybody. Everybody loves kids and everybody fights to survive their kids. So kids are a great network, a great way to make networks. Think about not just how we can redeem our own kids, but how we can share with other parents. Jobs and careers, as we choose a company, as we conduct ourselves at our jobs, as we live in neighborhoods and communities, and as we send missionaries, as we pray for people from our midst, like David and Jackie, like Jason and Ella, like Eric and May, 
as we pray for them, as we support them, as we go. You know what we're doing? Is we're taking part in the second part of the gospel. Luke says it's not finished, and he writes the book of Acts. And we say it's not finished. And we go out, and we send out, and we become part of the book of Acts. Which brings us all back to Cory Booker. Imagine you're on the security detail for Cory Booker, and it's your job to keep him safe. And you say to him, as a security guard detail did, you can't go into that burning building. You have got to stay safe. And he argues, and then he pushes them away, and he goes in. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus told him, now I must suffer and die and rise again. And Peter said, no, it can't. He was Jesus' security detail. Jesus ignored him, pushed away, went to the cross. If you're Cory Booker's security detail, and this is your job, this is your livelihood, and the mayor runs into a burning building, what are you going to do? You've got to follow him up those stairs. You, you may lag a few steps behind, but the security detail in the end, once he found that woman through her over his shoulder and rushed back through the kitchen. When he finally got through the wall of flame, there was a security detail waiting for him, helping him carry that woman down through the smoke and the stairs. This is what Jesus is calling us to, what he called those disciples to the week after Easter. He's already rushed through those flames at risk of his life, and he's saved. And now he's calling us to help him carry potential victims out of the smoke of a burning house. The gospel does not end with Luke 24. It continues through Acts chapters 1 to 29. Let's pray together. Father, this is an extraordinary gift you give us that we can be part of the work that Christ has done to save. Father, may this grip our hearts so that we will give our lives to it as he gave his life to us. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be singing a song. Uh,